Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Folly Coffee Podcast. If you haven't done so already, I ask that real quick here, you just pause, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, and if you've liked any of the previous episodes or this episode, please give us that five-star rating. It helps us greatly. Thank you, and enjoy this episode. Hey, this is Rob. This is episode 82 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right, this will be the second episode in a row of a recurring guest. The previous episode was with Kamal Muhammad, who you actually brought up to me as being a very impressive individual, and I'm excited for the feedback on that one because that episode was awesome. But here today, I have Joe Morocco, a.k.a. Roaster Joe, for the second time back on the podcast. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So exciting. And we talked a little bit, okay, you can stop that. We talked a little (laughs) bit about what we're going to talk about today, but I wanted to start uh, with Liston Beisler, I think has, the the importer you now work with, Yep. I think has one of the more interesting stories, because when I first heard that you said, hey, I'm switching over to a new importer, Liston Beisler, I was like, interesting, I I haven't heard of them. It must be like a little boutique importer, kind of a startup (laughs) deal, like, okay, but if Joe's on board, they've got to have something going right. And then you told me the story about what there is specifically within the U.S., and I was like, how have I not heard of this? (laughs) And so I'd love for you to tell that story of like Liston Beisler, based out of Germany, Yep. And so you started working for a German-based importer. And I'm like, what is going on here? Then you told me the story, and I was like, whoa, there is major opportunity here. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess to go, well, let's go backward before we go forward. Um, Listen, Beisler, we are celebrating 120 years this year. We started in 1901. Um, so it's been around for a really long time. And by we, I do not mean me, because I have not been around that long. Not quite that long. Um, not quite that long. And uh, so if you think about a German company that's endured since 1901, they've been through a lot. A few historical activities. Some some big major events. So um, thinking about job security feels pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Feels pretty safe. Yeah, they're like 2020 is among our uh, eventful years as a business. It's true. It's very true. So, yeah, being with a company that has endured other very challenging events I guess, scenarios throughout time has really been helpful this year. But yeah, so in terms of them here in the U.S., we've actually been trading coffee in the U.S. for a really long time, um, starting all the way back into the 1960s when we were uh, working with Alfred Pete. Alfred Pete of Pete's Coffee and Tea, which is a very famous coffee company based in the San Francisco area. Um, Alfred just basically walked in to Liston Beisler one day off the street and um, Apparently, he couldn't find the coffee that he wanted where he was from. And so we talked to Liston Beisler, and they were like, yeah, we've, we've got you covered, man. We'll start importing coffee to San Francisco and struck a really great relationship, which if you also know anything about coffee history, you know that Alfred Pete was roasting coffee for what was then just a cafe and became a couple of cafes. And that was a company called Starbucks. So I'm familiar um, with the brand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They've grown a lot over the years. Um so then Starbucks eventually in the early 70s branched out and uh, started roasting their own coffee. And we did all of their coffee. We did all of Pete's coffee. And we still do a ton of work with Pete's Coffee and Tea out of San Francisco. And uh, we we have done a lot of work with Starbucks, not so much in recent years, but 
Um, yeah. As so pretty cool like, history. Now they own the farms. They're importing. They're doing everything vertically. Yeah, they're vertically integrated, as we say. But that's where I was like, <laughs> how have I not heard of an importer that just have the casual two customers of Pete's and Starbucks? Basically, <laughs> like, and when you're talking of starting to work with them in the 70s, you're, uh, listen, Beisler's working with them before they are even exploded to what they are today. For sure. So I have to imagine List and Beisler also grew at an alarming rate as oh, yeah. these companies exploded. Yeah, List and Beisler, I think we have always been a pretty steadily mid-sized importing company um, focused on quality, focused on connecting farmers with the people that are roasting the coffee, but in a very kind of back of house, not boastful, not, hey, look at our marketing campaign kind of way. Um, to a fault, I would say. Yeah, because <laughs> you've never my, heard of us. <laughs> yeah, the next question was really going to be like, why is it, do you think, out of like the kind of big time importers that you've got some major clients? Why do you think it is that I'm more familiar with other importers and hadn't been previous to you working there? I'm curious on your thoughts. Yeah, so on the European side, there is a, an outward sales push and has been for a very long time. But here in the US, we're still very new. So just getting our, our feet underneath us still at this point. So that outward sales push is really right now just kind of uh, legwork on the ground, calling people, um, emailing people, just really building relationships one company at a time. So it takes a long time to build up to that. And the entity here in the US, we are uh, kind of like separate, but also connected. So the company in Germany really supports us, but we are Liston Beisler Corporation U.S. based at this point. So we're trying to forge our own path with the support and under the, I guess, same flag as the German office. And so trying to get into that marketing thing is just taking a lot of time and, and energy, especially as you throw in COVID in the mix. You know, as soon as we started getting going last year, I joined up, uh, let's see, September of 2019. And so we really started rolling, you could say, by like February of 2020, which was perfect timing, right? <laughs> March yeah, right as soon as you're getting just, your toes wet. Exactly. It was just like somebody shot us in the head. <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't very fun. So the concentration has really been staying afloat over, mm -hmm. the, over the COVID times. But now we're starting to really get our, our energy back and... I think it's time you're going to start seeing a lot more of Liston Beisler. Yeah, and it was interesting the first time that we met because that was that first meeting of like, what are you doing? And you were showing me the offerings and I was really impressed with the price transparency. And it was funny because you were showing me things that I was like, we've never even been shown these things or even thought to request the pricing at every single step of the supply chain. And that's what I was really impressed with when you think of ethical trading, this will be kind of a good segue into some of the, the terms I want to dig into. Uh, going over these industry terms that you hear from everybody, but then you realize everybody kind of does it differently, and yet they're all using the same terms. And so with ethical sourcing, I think a lot of roasters will just be like, yeah, we paid a lot for that coffee, so it's ethically sourced because we're paying a lot for the coffee, which is above fair mm -hmm. trade pricing, which is another term we're going to go over. And then you started showing me these numbers, and I was like, oh, 
I guess I don't know what money is actually getting to the farmer. What what a percentage of this is shipping fees? What is the cost of just getting the ship to cross? How much am I paying for that? How much is get, going to the farmer versus going to the importer versus the end margin at the, at the end of the product? And that was the first time it kind of got me thinking a lot about price transparency and creating new standards for that. And that's something we continue to try to develop a formal statement on how and why are our coffees ethically sourced? What is fair trade pricing? Why aren't all of our coffees organic? And that's what I wanted to dig into today. Cool. Because our previous episode is the IG Live back in the the heyday of the COVID <laughs> era where everything yep. was Instagram, everything, or and then Zoom took over. And one of the things we talked about was organic. Yeah. And you hear this, and it's funny within coffee because you hear of natural coffees. Uh-huh. And if you release a naturally processed coffee, I think a lot of people register that the same way as organic. Oh, it's natural. It's organic. That's right. And we at Folly do not have all of our coffees certified organic because there's a lot of farms that don't certify their coffees organically because of the extra cost that would incur to the farmer. And there are far- certain farms that can sell, all- especially in Ethiopia is a big one, where they're able to sell all of their lot every year. So having to pay extra for certification could be basically losing money because they're like, we're already going to sell this coffee. But I want to dig into that today because you brought up some interesting points on the last one on organic. What do you consider to be the importance of organic certification outside of just like, oh, that feels nice. Like (laughs) that word makes me feel good. Why is it important within coffee farming of organic certification versus non-certified? And then are there any coffees that are non-organic certified that could be, but they just don't? Yeah, let's get into it. So um, I'm going to backtrack just one second and talk about just ethics in general. I think that we think of ethics as this black or white thing. Something is ethical or something is not. And really when it comes to a product like coffee that is built on colonialism, built on the developing world's back, um, there's, there are very, very many shades of gray. So for me, I believe personally from an importer standpoint where we can start with ethics is just with a policy of, I have nothing to hide. So that's kind of where I feel ethics start. And that's where that meeting with you kind of came from is if we can just talk openly about the costs, then we can also start addressing some of the costs. Um, Okay. So let's get into certification. So organic certification is, um, believe it or not, an FDA thing, Food and Drug Administration thing, uh, which is through the United States government. So if you want to be an organic certified farmer in Burundi or Mexico or Sumatra, you have to be registered with the FDA, which is bonkers. (laughs) I was not aware of that. Yeah. And you have to be inspected and you have to report and you have to have proof um, your soil has to be tested. In some places, the certification process can be upwards of five years. I was going to say, so you need someone from the FDA in the U.S. to come to your farm, wherever you are in the world, and run through all of these processes. Yeah, and basically most countries around the world that have agricultural um, resources have you know FDA inspectors in country, okay. all over. It's a global, FDA is a major global organization. So uh, that's step one. And step two, in order for, like, let's say, let's set this up in in a U.S. perspective. You have a neighborhood, and each house on the block has three to four acres, okay, which is kind of the average size of a farm. 
and you in the middle of the block want to become organic certified because if you get organic certified you get an extra 10 20 30 40 cents a pound depending on where you are geographically but i'm your neighbor and i really like my chemical fertilizers because i can grow 30 40 50 percent more yield so therefore my yield i'm going to make more money than you with your organic herbicides pesticides etc are going to make with your extra bonus so by me making my decision on my farm when the fda comes and inspects yours what are they going to find chemical fertilizers because of the neighboring farm because of the neighboring farm so generally what you'll see is some regions cannot be organic certified in some regions de facto are if you go to places like peru almost everything is organic they have very strict guidelines um, on how they can treat the the earth how they can what they can put onto the um, crops and things like that Whereas if you go to a place like Costa Rica, you're not going to hardly find anything that's organic certified. They just don't really believe in it in Costa Rica. Um, So it really depends on where you go, whether or not it's even going to be possible. Um, Generally speaking, also, if you're the farm that's, say, at the top of the hill, you've got the best geography, you've got the best varieties, you own... 50 acres or 200 acres, you own a really nice sized farm and you're able to produce coffee that can yield three, four, five dollars a pound. And you have direct relationship with export to where you're kind of singled out as a, as a rock star farmer. There's no real incentive for you to go through five years of trouble and pain, take away your maybe carefully added chemical fertilizers you know that you're doing respectfully and responsibly there's no real incentive for an extra 20 cents a pound it's going to cost you a lot more so a lot of your really high quality farmers don't even consider getting a certification just doesn't make sense where it really begins to make sense is when a community of farmers that are not at the top of the hill that don't have a lot of resources to even buy chemical fertilizers can co-opt together and empower each other and all agree to organic practices and they could become certified together as an organization if they collect as an organization and this is where you see a lot of um, alignment with other organizations and other certifications this is where something like fair trade would come in now quick while i'm thinking about it does something like chemical fertilizer to get the higher yield, because I've I've heard you mention the major benefit of using fertilizer like that being the yield. Does it affect the quality of the coffee? Do you notice better quality of the organic crops or the farms you're talking about that are careful in their procedures? Is the quality of the coffee affected or is it just yield? Generally, the quality of the coffee is affected positively if you're looking at the farm um, temporarily. So for instance, if I have never put on chemical fertilizers, (laughs) (laughs) if I've never put on fertilizers that are chemically based, um, then which let me backtrack all fertilizers, whether organic or non are chemical based. So when I'm saying chemical based, I mean non-organic certified chemicals. Um, So if you, 
if you take a raw farm that's been functioning for a very long time and then dump a bunch of fertilizer on it, you're going to have a record crop. Now, if you do that over a long period, what ends up happening is the biodiversity in the soil begins to break down. And soil itself is a living thing. And you can sterilize your farm, you kill everything in the soil to the point where you become dependent on that chemical fertilizer. And at that point, your farm kind of ebbs into a state of decay. Um, the coffee is not going to be as brilliantly dynamic. It will be solid. You'll still get high yield, but it will just be kind of like flatline coffee. There are exceptions to all of these things that I'm saying, of course, but as a general rule, that's what you see. So usually what I see as a best case scenario is farms in general using a lot of organic fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides and using really good horticultural practices to encourage yield while also discouraging pests, et cetera, et cetera. Usually if you have something that's encouraging the yield of a, of a tree, it's probably also encouraging other things on that farm to grow. So that's where the other chemicals have to come into play to keep those other things down while you focus on just the coffee tree. But if you can grow coffee in a way that is like really in balance with nature and then maybe for emergencies have access to a chemical that you can throw on to fight a pest or something like that that's just there temporarily, that's a much more healthy way of balancing the farm in my opinion. Not a not a if or but kind of an and perspective. So as we're sourcing coffees and some of my favorite coffees we've sourced through the past few years have been non-organic certified, but... Mm-hmm. In theory, based off what you're saying, if we're tasting coffee and you're just like, this is an amazing coffee, it's complex, it's brilliant, it's got awesome flavor notes, it's probably a sign of a farm, even if they're non-organic, that they probably have good practices and how they're rotating uh, chemical, you know, the non-organic chemical uh, fertilizer with the regular fertilizer and just good horticultural practices. Would you say that, is it fair to say that like a great tasting coffee is probably a sign of good practices of how they're uh, managing their Soil? Yeah, generally speaking, if you have a good, strong biodiversity in the soil, then you have a really good, strong biodiversity in the cup. And that biodiversity is nuance and flavors that are, you know, bonkers off the board. Um, when we're, you know, when we're scoring a coffee as coffee nerds, it gets a high score and it gets a whole lot of flavor descriptors that are attached to it. Usually that doesn't come accidentally. Now, there are, of course, exceptions to this. Um, There are places that use heavy chemicals and heavy fertilizers that still have very intense flavors in the cup. But those intense flavors I find to be kind of unilateral. And I think of places like Kenya. Kenya, you know, the the coffee can be intensely citric, intensely bright. And everybody loves those coffees, but they do use a lot of heavy chemicals. And from the health side, this might be in your world or not. In terms of using the chemicals for not, is there a major health risk of the chemical use in something like a like a Kenyan coffee? Um, that would be debatable. You know, we can get into some pseudoscience there. Right. But uh, I personally don't believe so as much, but some people out there would definitely argue that if you put it in the soil, it's going to go into the seed. Um, a lot of the chemicals have breakdown points that are lower than the temperature that we roast coffee also. 
So there are some other factors there too. Um, generally though, if you're buying really high quality coffee, you're buying coffee that was very healthy. And I believe personally that you are also going to be healthy by drinking it. Is that something that you consider when you're sourcing coffees is organic versus non-certified? And do you ever work with farms that want to get organic certified? How does that process work? Definitely. Yeah. There is an organization called the Rainforest Alliance and you can get, uh, you can have a Rainforest Alliance certified coffee in, in your lineup if you register with them. And what they do is they give kind of an intermediate or an intermediary uh, bonus for a farm that is working toward organic certification. And it kind of helps to cover those extra costs as they go through the process. Some farms will just elect to remain Rainforest Alliance certified, which is not a full organic certification, but it does denote a lot of organic style practices. That is not registered through the FDA, mm. you know, through the Rainforest Alliance, but they do uh, do inspections and you have to report and things like that to ensure that that farm is moving in the right direction toward that organic certification. So that may be back to our neighborhood analogy. That may be something that you could do if your neighbor is still using, you know, strong chemical pesticides and herbicides, you could still get that Rainforest Alliance bump. Because it would be a big financial risk as a farm to be fully organic because of, if not just the one thing that you mentioned that if there was a sudden growth of something that's non-coffee that starts to affect your your crop and your yield and all of a sudden you're losing coffee because of some infestation or overgrowth of another style of plant, if you can't have any sort of chemical stoppage of that plant, then you kind of have to just sit and say, I hope we get as much coffee as we do out of this. And th it, there's so many layers to it that it, it it's that something that it's hard for us to answer. I've kind of tasked Jeff with it. It's been like three or four weeks now where I was like, we need a formal answer of like, why aren't all of our coffees organic? And it's like, here we go. Let's listen to the first 20 minutes of this episode. Here's why we kind of, we select based on the taste of the coffee and ethical practices, which is the next topic I want to get into. And there's nobody better to talk to about this than you because you've had like every position in the coffee industry. <laughs> and now you're on the importer side working directly with farms. So ethical trading is probably the most generic used term. And then the next level of that would be like direct trade. And mm -hmm. I think both of these, almost every coffee company in existence says, yes, we ethically trade our coffees. And most of the time, I think when you dig in, they go, well, we pay this much. So it's ethically sourced. What does it take in your mind where you would be comfortable calling a coffee ethically sourced versus non-ethically? That's a big question for me personally, <laughs> because I really struggle with the term ethical uh, when it pertains to coffee. Yeah. I, I feel like coffee is so ingrained in a colonialist system that even when we try to enforce onto that system something that we would call ethical, it's still very patriarchal in because the way it, that we do that. Yeah, it's ethical <laughs> trading based on the current landscape, uh, yep. where if you were to start this whole thing from scratch... You'd be like, well, we can't do that. That's unethical. But, oh, Correct. no, no, no. But that's how it's always been in coffee. So if we get better than that, then it's ethical. Yep. And that's where it gets interesting when you look at something like Kona Coffee from Hawaii. You're like, these are amazing coffees, but the price probably far exceeds what the actual coffee is. And then you start to think, well, why is that? And you're like, oh, because the farm's in the U.S. and there's wage laws and there's practices in place to prevent what is kind of the landscape within other coffee, uh, within coffee growing countries or regions. That's right. And so 
as an importer, when you're consider- considering these things and saying these coffees are ethically sourced, what are the kind of parameters you're looking at to at least be comfortable to say, hey, we're doing our part to make things better than at least how they are right now? So personally, I have a couple of things that I think about. Number one, what is the price that the farmer is asking us to pay or the uh, group that we're buying the coffee from? What are they asking us to pay? Is that price ethical or not? That's a challenging question because if I'm going to say yes or no, then I'm basically saying that I know better about what the farmer needs or what the farmer wants or whatever their situation is than they do. So we try to gil- we try to build a trusting connection built on history, you know, built on relational connections, all kinds of things over time, which Listen Beisler has had a lot of, um, to where when a farmer is talking to us, they feel comfortable sharing their number with us mm-hmm. and saying, hey, we're going to need 250 a pound for this. And then paying that much, you know? And then I feel on the sales side, a very strong um, responsibility to work with roasters who care, not just from a marketing perspective, but that are asking me really hard questions, penetrating questions, that if I am not answering those questions in a a forthright way, in a transparent way, um, and in a way that satisfies their uh, need, for the style of trade that they want to do, that they'll just walk away. And that's the kind of roaster I want to work with. I want to, I want to work, work with a roaster who is willing to put their business in between an importer and a farmer to say, no, we're going to pay a little bit more. You know, Even though you are willing to pay less, we are not willing to pay less. And since you're willing to pay less, we're not going to work with you. That's great. The other thing is um, listening to, from a broader perspective, what farmers in general are kind of driving toward. So in what I mean by that is a lot of farmers, they may, they may be connected to an organization and that organization may be saying, we need to get $2 a pound. But the farmer behind that organization may be you know, struggling and there's no real connection to the farmer directly. There are a lot of very large multinational conglomerate corporate companies that are out there that are doing trade that are exporting and importing coffee. And they make it very opaque to actually what goes into the farmer's pocket at the end of the um, chain. And within those organizations, there's no real way to check backward as to what, you know, money is going where. So the other thing we try to do is really work outside of those big multinational companies. So we try to trade directly with small export companies. And, uh, oh, you're, you're going to maybe hear some rain in the back. That oh, is some straight some up hail, hail right that now. Some hail. <laughs> Bring in the storm. Fool's spring in Minnesota. That'll be snow again in a month. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. It is snow on the other side of the state right now. I'm okay with that. I'm actually okay with rain and hail today. Felt kind of nice at 40 degrees. Feels like a tropical storm. It does. But uh, you were you were so you were saying is there's like these multinational mm-hmm. conglomerates that make it hard to find transparency in what's going to the end farm. Yep. 
And what do you do when you run into an, organi- an organization like this where you find that roadblock of, hey, we understand you work with this farm. We want to know what they're getting paid and you don't get an answer. What what kind of uh, actions are taken at that step? Yeah, so um, it's less of us like going to them and asking a bunch of questions and more of us just never going to them. <laughs> God, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> we just try to, we try to work around those large companies and uh, try to kind of form our own network of smaller um I guess, interconnected exporters that also have farmers that are working within that export company. We do not export. We, even though, you know, I say multinational to explain these big companies, we are technically multinational because we're in Germany and now we're in the United States and we're actually starting an office in Australia. Um, But we are privately owned and we're kind of staying in our lane of importing. That's what we do. Um, I am your partner as a roaster to achieve your goals in the coffee that you are buying. And I want to be that same partner for the export groups that we work with that are very integrated into their farming communities so that whenever I'm buying coffee, I know that the farmers in those communities have a voice at the table of those export companies. They're not owned by giant banks that are dictating how the money flows to the farm group. Yeah, because it it seems like when you get to that size or that style of business, it tends to be financial motivations that are placed above priority over things like even the taste or quality of the coffee becomes less important, the ethical nature of the beans or the importance of a relationship with the end farmer knowing what they're getting paid seems to go by the wayside, what the larger a company gets and more of those corporate, you know, prototypical corporate influences start to take over of like, how can we maximize, maximize profits? And that tends to overwhelm all the other considerations. And that's one of the things about coffee that especially the high end is trying to find importing partners and farms that that is not the priority because that's not our priority as a business either. So I'm going to throw out some different scenarios to you. And what I want you to do is tell me, is this direct trade or no? In your opinion, this is Roaster Joe's opinion. This is, there is no fact behind this. Trust me, I've tried to find it. There's no definition that this is direct trade and this is not. Everybody interprets it very differently. So here's the first, uh, here's the first scenario. We source a coffee from Ethiopia. The way we found this coffee was you sent us a sample. We roasted it, loved the coffee. So we buy it from you. You give us the information on the farm. We have not been to the farm. We haven't had any direct interaction with the farmer. But we're sourcing the coffee from from them, quote unquote, directly through Listen Beisler. Do you consider that to be direct trade? No. Tell me why. Well, because you have no relational connection or, you know, if I were to talk to the farmer whose coffee you're using or the farm group whose coffee you're using and say, isn't it great, you know, that Rob is using your coffee? They'd be like, uh, who dat? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm in agreement with you on this one. And that, that I've. Doug, I'm not going to name any names, but I have heard direct trade <laughs> used, and they're well directly traded through an importer. I was like, oh, so you went there and worked with an importer to source the coffee? Well, no, we found it through the importer, yeah. and that. So there's the first layer. So I, let I, me put something straight, real fast. There are there within the last five to ten years has been a huge wave of small importers that label their coffee direct trade. Well, if you're an importer. All of your coffee. It is direct, direct trade. trade. If you're if you're the one doing the trading and paying FOB prices, so oh, then when they explain, sell that explain coffee, explain FOB really quick. FOB pricing. Could you explain? Okay, what that FOB is? is free on board, which mm-hmm. is the price you pay an exporter 
it's a it's a price, but it's also a contract that says the ownership of the coffee, or let's say if anything bad happens to this coffee, the responsibility of the coffee lies on the exporter before it crosses the bow of a ship and the importer after it crosses the bow of a ship. So free on board means we're free of it as soon as it's on board. It's your problem now. Gotcha. <laughs> uh-huh. So, can, okay, continue along that. Uh, so if you're an importer and you're putting, you know, direct trade out there as our coffees are all direct trade, which they are, then a roaster who is not really, you know, savvy yet, a new roaster in the industry uh, will buy that and say, oh, this coffee's direct trade. That's because 100%. they're not thinking of it in the way that it was initially brought to the table. That is definitely what it is. They go, yeah, we're sourcing direct yeah. trade coffee. So yep. this is direct trade coffee. And in so there's no malice there. They're not trying yeah. to like spin anything. We got to give them the benefit of the doubt. It's just a lack of education and a little manipulation from the importer. Yeah, if anything, it's probably on the importer to yep. say, hey, just a heads up, I saw you're communicating this out in direct trade. But that is an uncomfortable conversation to have because all of a sudden as a roaster, you might get self-conscious and be like, uh, uh, I, I didn't know, or be like, well, no, now you're making me look bad, whatever it may be. It's kind of an uncomfortable conversation, but I'm the type that I'd rather be called out and no than be marketing one way and then figure out a year down the road that you go, oh, shit, <laughs> Now we're actually direct trade yeah. and we've basically just been like not intentionally, but kind of lying <laughs> about what our coffee is. But that makes a lot of sense. And I've never thought it that way that the importer goes, this is direct trade coffee. Yep. It'd be the same thing as somebody being like, this is a non GMO coffee. You should yep. buy this because it's a non GMO coffee. Well, all coffee is non GMO. And so it would Maybe. be, it, was that? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll dig into that a bit of time later. But in general, I think what I've been told is that mm -hmm. all, if not the broad majority of coffee is non-GMO. So for someone to be like, you should buy this one from us because our coffees are non-GMO. It'd be kind of the same idea of like, you're kind of just manipulating things that are true for everybody in a way to take advantage of someone who might not be as educated. Yeah. So slick marketing gone wrong. <laughs> so there's the first scenario. Okay. Let's say the second scenario here. Uh, I get maybe eight of these emails a day. Farm emails me directly, says, hey, we have an offering of farms. Can we send you a sample? So in theory, you're communicating directly with the farm to get samples from them. So they send samples to you, you sample roast them, go, these coffees are great. We want to source them. And they go, okay, here's the importer we work with. So you'll have to place, uh, you'll have to place an order with that importer. So the chain of events, they contacted you, you decided to buy their coffee, you work through the importer that they did. Would you consider that to be direct trade? Personally, no. Okay. Nope. Go on. Well, I guess we need to talk about what is direct trade and what is not. There is no certifying body. Like you said, there is no specific definition, but there is a, a promise to the things that we market. When you put marketing out there, you are saying something to a consumer that they are then believing, Right. And the intent behind saying this is direct trade, the intent of that or what is trying to convince what it's trying to convince the consumer to believe is that you are directly relational with a farmer, both geographically, as in you've been there, relationally, as in you know them, and you, you can add on top of that 
financially you have taken on all of the risk of that of that exchange um in meaning that you've done importation you've done you know you've basically carried the coffee in on your back or something it's kind of what people think yeah and so i find that um that terminology of direct trade to be another kind of form of greenwashing where you you know say this is sustainable well, is it really sustainable or did you... Well, yeah, because when I put it on the coffee bag, it helps itself. Exactly. <laughs> so now my business is sustainable. Yeah. It kind of doesn't that mean was, I'm, That was me. Not not folly. Not folly. <laughs> we, we don't put it on our bag. That's, that's why I wanted to have this episode. We're I super be... unsustainable. Don't worry. <laughs> no. I, I wish I edited my episodes right now. Uh, anyway, this episode is brought to you by... No. Uh, and, and, so or by, Burl. By, yeah. <laughs> by Pete's Coffee. No. Um, so by that definition, if would you only consider it direct trade if the roaster was taking the importing on themselves? So now we're gonna go a little deeper. Let me lo- th- let me throw one more scenario at you. Okay, okay. This I'll one, give you one more yes or no because this one is directly related to folly. Okay, okay. So let's say you get an Instagram DM from a coffee grower and they send you samples, and you like it, same scenario, you end up roasting it. And then after that, you go, we love these coffees, we love your practices, we want to continue to work with you based off this first transaction we've, we've had. And so I'll just throw the farm out there that this is the scenario. We work with uh, Loma La Gloria and El Salvador with Annie Ruth. And so over the past two years, we have pretty consistent communication throughout the year of how, here's, the, here's this year's crop, here's what we're looking, what are you interested in? And then we now have a relationship where we've stated to them, we want to work with you for years to come. Basically, every time a batch of your coffee comes in, we're, we're going to buy some. Mm-hmm. Would you consider that to be direct trade because there's more of a relationship? And to preface it, I don't say it is. Yeah. But I will use phrases like we directly communicate with the farm yep. ahead of time to decide which coffees to choose in the future. Is that a relationship where you'd say that's direct trade? I would say that that is more aligned with the reality of what that term is trying to convey. Personally, I would not use the terminology direct trade at all. Um, And I'll get into why. Yeah. But if you're saying from what people understand direct trade to be, does this align with that? My answer would be yes. That much more closely aligns with that. Um, I would say that there's still a lot of steps that you can go through to enrich that relationship and to really solidify it into being a direct trade thing. But I think the image that a lot of people have is that there is this poor farmer and there is this system that suppresses that poor farmer. And that whenever you put direct trade on, on the label, what you're claiming is that you are going around that system in a vigilante way to rescue that farmer from the oppression that they're under. Mm-hmm. That is not what I would consider happening in that scenario. Right. Yeah. And that's why I, I, I've never used the trade direct trade. Yep. And in that, that whole conveyance of thing is another form of oppression too. It's another form of like disrespect. It's another like, form look, of. Look how we're able to step in and exactly. save you. It's white from, saviorism. Yeah. So it's like, yep. let us step in and save you from what's happening. Correct. So that's why it's like the term. I want people to know that we're, we always work towards forming relationships and that's what we want to do. And we try to do that whenever possible. But it is like, oh, so you work directly with the farmer. It's like, well, yes, we're in, we communicate with yep. them, but 
it's funny you say that because that is what I picture. And I go, but we're not doing that. We haven't been to Origin yet. Yeah. 2020 was going to be the first year. And then not a lot of people doing a lot of traveling that year. But we have our first trips planned for this year. And we're in communication of, hey, back half of the year, let's look at what's going on to see that we can actually start forming some of these direct relationships. But that's the unfortunate truth of the nature of that term is there is this sense of like you use it to show people that look at us. Yeah, look at us. When in reality, what it is, is you're paying someone for the work that they're doing. Yeah. And you want to pay them more when they're doing good work. And especially when you're a high-end roaster, that's really at the end of the day what you're paying for because it's difficult to pay more for a coffee that doesn't taste good because your customers have an expectation of the coffees you're putting out. And it's cool that they're like you see large companies able to work around that and be able to balance it by still sourcing some of the coffees that don't turn out quite how they want and blending Mm -hmm. into like, I know Intelligentsia does it with like their house blend. It's intentionally made that like, hey, these are not the best beans, but they allow us to financially support. But it seems that that's limiting. So you have to be of a certain size where you can basically take on that financial risk. Big of time. And that's where I struggle with it, with the size we're at. Yep. Is like, how can we, as a very small roaster in the grand scheme of things, how can we work closer towards that without being able to take on that financial risk? Because we're not at the size that we can source a full shipping container. We're not at the size where we can commit to a full lot of coffee and then say, however it turns out, we're still going to commit to this price. What advice would you have for small roasters like ourselves to be able to work towards whatever direct trade is? I'm going to say working directly with farmers mm-hmm. without taking on that whole like uncomfortable nature of what that phrase can mean. Yeah, well, let's get into the nitty gritty of a couple of things here. Number one, if I look at the landscape of coffee roasting in just the 50 United States, just here, I know that there are roughly about 5,000 roasting companies. So if I was to encourage all 5,000 of those roasting companies to get all of their coffees through some kind of direct trade relationship, that is utter chaos. In the global footprint of that level of travel per year, all of those kinds of things are completely unsustainable. Now, if I look at that from a farm perspective, think about having a farm and having people visit that farm every harvest period where you're the busiest and demanding information about your finances, demanding information about your uh, growing practices, your process, all of those things and getting that from multiple angles. That is also highly unsustainable. And a lot of that idea that a roaster has about what direct trade would look like best case scenario is them landing in a farm and having this beautiful relationship with this farmer where they just have like full access and that in my opinion is not good that'd be <laughs> the, that'd be equivalent of someone who buys a 12 ounce bag of folly coffee every couple months online and then says hey every time i'm gonna buy this one bag of coffee from you i need to come by the roaster yep. i need to meet everybody i need to see your processes i, I watch want, jeff roast i, I want to inspect I want to the gre- jeff. Exactly. I, I want to inspect the greens i want yep. to watch jeff roast it i want to cup it with him i want to see it being packaged and then i'll buy my one bag of coffee yeah and that's what i struggle with is like how can us as a small roaster they're going like hey we can buy a pallet of coffee, which to them is like, thanks. Yep. But it's, it's not like we're coming in and changing their entire year because we're not a Starbucks or a pizza that can come in and do that. That's right. So how would you recommend it? Having worked with farmers so much, what is the appropriate role for a roaster, especially of the smaller size 
to not be that be that person? Well, uh, twofold. One is going to sound super convenient, but I really truly mean this from the bottom of my heart. You should work with a reputable importer who's doing that work on your behalf, who is that conduit that is allowing the coffee to flow in a way that suits your company's needs, both from an from a you know, is this ethically sourced perspective and also from economics and um, quality, all of the other, you know, what time does it get in during the year, all of those things. So working with a good partner is, that's critical. Um, Two, personally, I believe the most sustainable coffee supply chain model is when I am doing the best at my job that I can possibly do and you are doing the best at your job that you can possibly do, if Folly Coffee is taking a coffee and roasting it to its like most brilliant potential, just like a chef would with a, with a piece of meat or an herb or a spice, bringing out the very best, then you can charge more for that. And you can grow your business and buy more of that. And that, I believe, will matriculate into a healthier supply chain. If I'm doing the same thing, if I'm diligent in finding the coffees that fit best for you that you can then maximize potential for and doing the best at being a connector for you and the farm in a healthy way that is sustainable and that we can grow together, that's transparent, that that is not transparent in an exploitative way to the farmer, but that's transparent in an accountable way across the supply chain, then I know that I'm doing my role the best that I can do, and I'm going to sustain that that supply chain. And the same thing is true at the farm. If the farm, if the farmer is, you know, paying as close attention to the worms in his worm bed or her worm bed um, as you are to the coffee in your roaster, and as I am to the contracts that I'm managing then we're all systematically growing this thing in a really healthy way. Because it it seems to me that everybody wants that emotional, they want the emotional phrases, they want Folly to say, we're direct trade, all organic, all certified fair trade. And like you said before, it's never black or white, there's all these gray areas. And I think the conclusion I've come to just based on the research and the size we're at, that there there is a threshold for being too small to impact change in a way where they might even want you to come every harvest season versus you could get to a size where all of a sudden you're talking containers and then that could become very real. And I think the biggest role I can have, and I've kind of said this in the past, like the best thing I can do is go out and sell more coffee. Yep. And obviously Jeff is focusing on roasting it to the best of the ability that he can and bringing out the best things in every coffee that we have. Yep. And I was like, that's kind of our role within the system. And as much as we can directly interact with the farms to know that, hey, we intend to buy from you next year too because we appreciate what you're doing. Seems to be kind of the most you can do as a really small roaster without over... Or a really big roaster. Or a really big roaster. Yep. Uh, without overstepping that uncomfortable line of like, I think roasters in general... At, even at our size would go, we're visiting the farm to sh- because you want us to come visit. Yep. Like we're making this assumption that you would be honored to have us there. But <laughs> the reality of the conversation, if I came through and said, we just spent a week with you and you're buying a pallet of coffee. When you look at it on paper of the time and effort spent to have a group of people come and visit a farm and then leaving with a pallet of coffee, they go, 
kind of wasn't worth the, the time. Yeah. And the, even if it is like an enjoyable experience, you go, it, you can't do that with every single roaster. And so right. it is kind of funny that everybody just assumes, no, they want us to come to the farm and visit every single time. Whereas it's probably better for them to have that relationship initially of just, Hey, let's communicate. We'd love to know if you're planning on buying next year, that helps us. And just knowing that we have a new customer to continue to reach out to versus that uncomfortable thing of like, we're here at, where's my parade? Yeah. <laughs> I kind of look at it a little bit like online dating, you know, cause you kind of start, I'm familiar. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of start online and then you work your way to a face to face. And then over time, maybe you have a longer term connection. And so that's just kind treat, of, treat farms like you would treat the COVID era of dating. Exactly. Okay. Yep. <laughs> and really, I mean, if you think about it holistically from a global perspective, it, we should treat farms that are in delicate ecosystems and in delicate, um, you know, healthcare systems and all of that, like they're in a COVID area all the time. You know, when we go traipsing around with our boots that have just drugged through another farm onto another farm, or we go carrying a disease into a community that doesn't have a hospital. I mean, there are repercussions that are, that are real. That is a real threat. Um, so we do, I do encourage travel. I do encourage meeting the farmer eventually that you have a relationship with if you're growing in a relationship. Um, but I, I do encourage that being kind of more on the farmer's terms. And I do encourage doing that through consolidated travel with other roasters, with, uh, with import partner, with the export partner, with people on the ground that know the situation on the ground that can help navigate and keep things like really copacetic not like in a let's sanitize ourselves from from each other, but like in a let's have mutual respect and meet around a circular table where we're all coming together on equal terms and we're not forcing somebody to be a part of this relationship that doesn't want to be. And that would be another benefit, like you said, of an importer. Is yep. They know if the farmer even wants people to visit. Is it something that they would want to happen? Because if a farmer's against it, but the roasters being pushy or importers being pushy on making it happen, then you're probably not going to have a great experience when you get there because they don't want you there. There might be some entitlement that I'm here. So you you need to want me here. And yeah. that is kind of how we plan, at least at the size we're at now to do our purchasing trips is we're doing it with importers and doing it with people who've done it before to make sure that, Hey, we don't want to overstep boundaries. We want to be respectful that the reason we're here is because you have a great product. And we want to see what goes into it at almost because like we just respect so much what you're doing that we want to see it and form that connection and be yeah. able to work in the future. And we, we found ourselves in a unique situation for our first trip we're doing in May. We just saw yesterday that food producers are eligible for the vaccine. So that's hopefully that nice. we're all good to go before May. Uh, but we found ourselves in a unique scenario that Jeff, when he was taking his Q grader exam, met Daniel from Peru and he was like, we don't export coffee. But if you want to visit, you can like yep. we would, I'd love to just show you around. And I was like, there is a great scenario for a small totally. roaster because you go in, exp Jeff already knows him. They became friends while they're doing the Q grader. So already you go, okay, we do have a connection and they don't export coffee to the U S right now. So you're going, there are zero expectations and we're here just to learn mm -hmm. and if we can help in any way while we're here, we're very happy to help. So I'm really excited about that. It's a kind of a unique thing for a first trip, but as we were starting to explore trips, that was the trouble we were finding is we were getting, hey, this is a purchasing trip, show up with the intent to spend. And it's like, well, we're not at the size where 
we're comfortable committing to that much or going on a trip like that without being able to commit to that much or the flip side where you feel like you're on a field trip and yeah. it's like, look at the picture. Does anybody want to stop and take, or look at the tree? Yeah. Does anybody want to stop and take pictures? This is a great Instagram moment. I'm like, well, that's not what we want either. The, the goal based on what I've had on previous podcast guests and just roasters I've talked to is that your perspective gets changed. Yeah. And that's important, especially when you're roasting coffee is like that you have that perspective. And I think that's a great takeaway is, hey, if you're going to visit the farm, know why. And also make sure that you're not going in with entitlement and like, oh, that you're not a celebrity. Hey, they have a way bigger business than you do. If anything, you should be honored that they're willing to have you there at all. Yeah. (laughs) And they've been doing this at such a high level. Um, Next topic, if you're good on that one. Well, let me let me address one thing also before I forget. And I think this is super important to talk about during COVID times is the damage that uh, quote unquote direct trade has done Um, and not to bring things down, but just to air things out. This past year has been devastating to coffee farmers all around the world, especially those that are dependent upon specific relationships with smaller roasters and that those smaller roasters have promised to buy because those farmers have allocated coffee specific to contracts and then when those roasters aren't able to sell coffee, they're also not able to buy coffee. And so they default. And then that really high quality coffee that that farmer was depending upon and put so much energy and attention to in order to get it those two, three, four points higher sits and spoils essentially. And there's no buyer for it. And so they have to put it on to market at a much lower uh, payout. And they this year they have lost tons of money globally, tons of money because of roasters defaulting. Whereas the, the larger network of import-export can absorb those. They have the cushion to be exactly. able to, hey, if this goes down a few points, we can lower the price of it to get it to move. But instead of the farm having one contact point that it's make or break, you're buying it or you're not, an importer has thousands of customers that like, Hey, it, this has fallen two points. So it's not good for this customer. But so now let's move it down to this next tier of customers and, and we see can if we do can it, move it fast there. while yeah. it's still fresh, you know, and we can go to the customer who before they were, you know, just doing online sales and now online sales have exploded. So they need that extra coffee. So we can find ways to kind of shift things around and make sure that the farmer's not not left in the lurch. But the farmer is the one who gets left in the lurch the most, who's taken advantage of. There's no transparency. They are basically um, kind of used as a marketing ploy in those direct trade relationships and then dropped in a flash whenever things don't go right. And that is super unethical. And it's the opposite of what's put on the bag intentionally to make it look like things are ethical. Um, Because essentially you're making them as a direct trader take on the risk of here's my projections, except I don't have to put any risk into those projections because I don't have to commit to that coffee until it's actually grown in the bag. The farmer's the one at the risk. And then they go, oh, our projections were way off. We thought we were going to be up 100%. We're only up 10%. So that 90% difference, that's on you to figure out what to do with that coffee. Yeah, and what are you going to do about it, farmer? Versus an importer or a large, large company that has the ability to absorb those costs, they factor in they factor that in to every year that yep 
we can absorb costs and that projections are going to be a little bit more stable because things are way more volatile for a small business that yeah. you could go through a one-year period of 200% growth and then that channel 2020 could hit and our entire office channel could go down or that's something right. like that. And that's an interesting way to look at it that if as a small roaster, so if and when we get to the size that we kind of start to evaluate those decisions that, hey, you should only do this if the lots you're committing to, you'll still take even if your projections are off. And 100%. Because then it's ethical trading versus here's where we think we're at, here's how much we're committing to, and then bailing when it doesn't end up that way. And that's why I really like the term relationship and not ethics, not direct trade. Um, during long ago, I used to work for a company called Caldi's Roast, Caldi's Coffee Roasting Company in Shout St. Out Louis. St. Louis. Yeah, what's up? Um, and we, you know, went through a lot of iterations of what to call the coffees that we were doing this kind of um, buying with and landed on relationship coffees because it's really that relationship that dictates how we interact with each other and relationship kind of supersedes ethics. So like, for instance, if I have a relationship with my son, I'm probably going to do things that are good for him and that um, are not good for him just based on what I'm going to tell Robin a podcast, you know, <laughs> that are good for him because I actually care. So that element of care is born through real legitimate relationships. So if I have a relationship with the farmers I'm working with, with the importers I'm working with, with the roasters I'm working with, that de facto builds in an element of safety and shared risk and shared goals and sustainability, et cetera. That is a really good way to put it, I think. And that kind of answers the topic earlier that like, well, the term direct trade kind of has become too ubiquitous and the things that have been tied to it, whether intentionally by people marketing that way or just subconsciously of the consumer picturing what direct trade is in their head, yep. that clarifying that to be like, hey, we have a relationship co relationship-driven coffee. Mm -hmm. And that's something that a small roaster can do too is they go, hey, at the size we're at and the resources we have, this is the best form of a relationship we can have with the farm. Because that's something that really small roasters, you go, well, going on a trip is expensive. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about like, hey – do we have the funds to buy these pre-printed bags right now or this? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, but we have to go to farm because we say these things or it's yeah. the expectation of the consumer that we've been to the farms. I kind of go, well, would a farm rather have me spend the thousands of dollars to go to them and take pictures with them and post those pictures and then be able to feel a little bit better about saying we're direct trade? Or would the farm rather have me take that money that we were going to spend on a trip Spend it into marketing dollars, spend it into approving processes, spending it into potential new customer acquisition. I think a hundred out of a hundred times the farmer would be like, we're good. Why don't you sell more coffee so you can buy more from exactly. us? Exactly. And that's kind of a weird thing is customers expect this of you, but the farm doesn't. Yep. And because the customers expect it of roasters, roasters feel the need that we have to do this, which from a you know, personal connection to what we're doing, I do feel it's a need. But from a business side, if you really, as a small business, want to benefit the farm at the most, those dollars should probably be prioritized to building your business versus are you doing this? It's funny. This came up on the last episode. Like how much of what you're doing is influenced by ego? Yes. And I and think that's direct trade in uh, a nutshell. And that's what direct trade really is. <laughs> yeah. And that's something that's kind of hard to wrestle with because you feel a little bit of that like 
the feeling that like, oh, well, we're not saying we've been to Origin, but I think customers assume you have. So yep. it feels kind of gross that we haven't been yet. And how do we deal with that? And I'm, I always justify you go, well, we took those dollars that we would have gone on a trip with and grew the business, whether it be through digital advertising, whether it be through like new processes and things to be able to improve the quality of our coffee or the consistency or anything along those lines. Any farmer is going to be more excited about that. Yeah. And that is probably more closely related to like, we don't need you to come to sell you coffee. We don't need you to be here. We don't need those pictures with you. We can interact with you via email or whatever. And you know, now there's zoom. I know CJ just went on a digital coffee trip and I'm like, yeah, well, there's actually a great example. If you can set something like that up, it's less on the farmer. You still are able to form a relationship, which I love that word. I'm going to start using that if you don't mind. Yeah. Oh yeah. That you, you're constantly working on building that relationship versus direct trade is kind of binary. Are you direct trade? Are you not? Yep. And like you said, they're well, you know, is anything really direct trade unless you're an importer yeah. or unless you're importing your own coffees. And so I really like that term relationship coffee and any small roaster can continue to work on any given relationship. Yep. And I think that's a much better answer than just saying we work directly with the farms to source coffees through an importer and via email and Instagram. <laughs> I would also say it's super hard in today's world as a roaster to take the high road and not put direct trade on your bag. Because anybody can easily just put direct trade on their bag. And then they also don't have to do all of the investment. They also don't have to do all of the marketing campaigns and everything because they can trick their consumer into believing something just by putting a mark on their bag that's not vetted, that doesn't have third-party verification, that's meaningless. So your competitor in the field can just say, oh, we're direct trade, if they're just buying green coffee from an importer Whereas you are like, no, let's look at the nuance. Let me talk to you about this. Let's be authentic about that's the high road. That's very difficult. Here's the unfortunate truth in the experience I've had on the sales side. You go, especially on like the co-op side of things, you go to someone and they go, are your coffees all organic certified? And you go, no, but I'd like to explain why. And they go, not taking it. Or they go, okay, let's have that discussion. You explain. Then they go, okay, well, we're fair with that. The unfortunate truth is if they said, are you all organic certified? A lot of these terms, people are using like they're interchangeable. So yep. are, are you organic certified? No, but we're direct trade. And they yep. go, oh, okay, then you're good. And so even though organic has nothing to do with direct trade or the ethics of that. It's a fleece. On the sales side, uh, there are a lot of buyers that they have a lot on their plate. They're not just thinking about coffee. They might not even know that much about coffee, but they know the few terms that they have to have to be able to bring in a coffee. So there is that kind of financial incentive that, hey, we'll be able to boost our sales if we put direct trade on the bag or if I just tell people that we're direct trade and then let's just stretch what that is and go, well, they contacted us on Instagram. So it's direct trade or we email with them. So it's direct trade and it's a tough thing and buyers don't have time to sit down and have that conversation a lot of the time. So there is that pressure to just have those buzzwords that you can use to to make a buyer feel good about Yeah. And it's tough because it's led to us not getting accounts. Because yeah. they go, are you organic certified? And you go, well, no, but let me explain. Are you fair trade certified? Well, we pay well above fair trade prices for all of our coffees, but they're not all certified. And then, yep. well, do you are, do you have are you direct trade? I, there's all these different terms that it's almost like they're just looking for one term. Yep, they just want your coffee to have one term on it, and if it does, we'll bring it in. And unfortunately, if I'm like, well, I'm not comfortable. Outside of saying we pay well above fair trade prices to commit to any of those things because they're com- complex issues. Yeah. And it, it's tough because it does lead to buyers just saying no. 
Yep. And you're like, please, just like let, let's sit down and go through what this means. And they're just like, if it's not this, we don't take it. And it's kind of a tough thing to get around. But you kind of have to decide that early on is where are you willing to stretch and where are you not? And yep. those are the types of terms that I think they're it's too easy to stretch, especially with something like direct trade where there's no certifying organization. Um, let's end on this. We can do this one real quick. Okay. Let's just have this be a yes or no. Okay. <laughs> on single origin. Okay. And what that means. Okay. If I'm sourcing a batch of coffee and it all comes from the same country, but it's from a bunch of different farms from all across the country. And it's just one cooperative that brings them together. Would you consider that single origin? Yes. Interesting. Okay. It's not just yes or no. Explain that one. I expected to go way further than that. So explain to me why you believe that's single origin. Yeah, that's where the that's where the terminology came from. Okay. Yeah. Was just simply from a country. Interesting. Yep. Um, I think through especially the last two, two and a half decades, we have narrowed that into specific regions and things like that. Um, but yeah, if you have a coffee from Costa Rica that is a single origin coffee, there are uh, of course, further things, you could also then have a single estate coffee. You can have a single uh, regional coffee. There are different ways of denoting that, but if it's single origin, it's from one particular country. And that is as opposed to a blend. So single origin, meaning one coffee from one place, as opposed to a blend, which is generally thought of as different coffees from different places. And I would further say that if that single origin is from that one country, it will ha- it will denote flavors of that country generally. Mm-hmm. Even if it's commercial grade Kenya, it will taste like commercial grade Kenya. So it's probably best for a roaster if you're taking the time and effort to go further than that. If you go, well, that's not good enough. Just the one country, because we kind of limit it at regional is where we kind of go, okay, mm-hmm. that's where we try to limit when we use the term single origin that it's probably on the roaster to denote that this is a single regional or uh, single regional origin. This is a single estate origin. And that way, if you're taking the time and effort that's reflected in kind of how you're communicating that in coffee mm-hmm. versus just single origin, which again is another term that a lot of people probably don't know what it means, but they go, I know when that's on the bag of coffee, that's usually better. So it must be a really good thing, which by the way, I think blends are very underrated. <laughs> I, well, that's the other thing is every coffee is also a blend. <laughs> this is a good point. Yeah, even, yeah, unless it's a single plant coffee. Even if it's a single plant, you still have different densities, different water, moisture, you know. So the only true single origin non-blend coffee is if you're roasting one bean. One bean. One bean at a time. <laughs> and that's the only real single yep. origin coffee. So everybody's lying. We're lying. Everything's <laughs> false. Okay. I'm curious on a personal level. Uh, since you've taken this role... Uh, and you've in the past, you've been on the roasting side, you've been on the roasting manufacturer side, literally making the at, over at Mill City, making the roasters. And you have this insane series of YouTube videos where I'm sure there's you know hundreds of thousands, millions of views that you've probably had a lot of people that look to you for tips and resources. And you seem to me to be the type of person that will give of themselves 
to a point where it's hard to recharge or refuel. And you have exposure to so many people, and now you're working with so many different roasters that because of your background, I have to imagine you've got roasters asking you tips. Not that we've done that at all. We've never done that. We've never asked. You definitely haven't come to the roaster and worked with Jeff and given him tips at all. We would never do that to you. (laughs) So I'm sure if we're doing it, that you probably get it from a lot of roasters. Yeah, all of them. Yeah. How are you able, because... Because of how you are and so giving of yourself, how do you recharge? Mm. How do you continue to not burn out, even if it's just emotionally? Because one thing I struggle with is that as we grow, there's more people that you've kind of created this expectation of what you do and how you operate. And as you grow, you have more and more people that they're not asking for any more than they were before. But now you've got hundreds of them instead of just working with a small group of people. Do you have a way of recharging or at least dealing with the guilt of not being able to help everyone at all times? Because that's that's the type of person I think you are, that you want to genuinely help everyone at all times. Mm-hmm. Is that something that factors into just like how you're able to function and potentially not burn out? Are there any things you have in place to combat that or be able to at least like get by without feeling too terrible about not being able to answer everyone at all times? You know, it's a, it's a major struggle for me. And I'm a people pleaser by nature. And so that complicates the struggle because I really hate to not help somebody because I know I'm letting them down. Um, and it's taken me way too long to realize this, but there, there has been a lot of um, failure in these areas that have negatively impacted my relationships with my family because I'm so plugged in with the coffee side that I have questions pouring in, you know, via Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and email and phone calls and all of this stuff all of the time that I'll just like pull away and start dealing with all of this coffee stuff. And then the burnout happens and then my family kind of gets the leftover Joe, you know, and it sucks. So some of the things that I've tried to do I really put parameters on the amount of time that I spend during the day. So whenever a certain time comes around, depending on the day, um, like for instance, today we're going a little long, but I try at five o'clock PM to just turn it off and then not to do coffee stuff um, and focus on family stuff. I try to, um, if people are asking me super long winded questions, I try to connect them to a resource and not just, go into the the question. Um, I, I try to, I guess, look at it more from protecting myself because my wife pointed out very clearly to me one day that you become a product that people are consuming and it literally does physically drain you, mentally exhaust you, physically um, you are not the same person when you've been drained all day by people just consuming off of your uh, knowledge. And the help that I can provide a roaster can save them thousands and maybe even over the course of a few years, millions of dollars. And whenever it's like a 30 minute phone conversation with them for free, that's hurtful. <laughs> you know, that is also a drain because you're like, okay, I'm just, I was just taken advantage of. Um, and you don't have the backbone to stand up and say, no, you need to pay me for this, or you need to at least buy a coffee from me, which inadvertently pays me for my time. So I've tried to stand up better for myself. 
of late and just say, you know, you can't have that information for free. I'm a super nice guy. I really want to help you, but this is my time, my knowledge, my expertise, and I can really benefit your company if we actually do this more formally. Well, it's so like it's buy like, coffee from me. Yeah, it's like don't show up to the party empty-handed. Totally. Don't don't don't, don't show up to a party where you know you're going to be eating and drinking and not show up with food and drink, yep. or at least bring something to the table. It's the same way in business. I, it's something I try to think about it, and it's again, it's kind of a tough when you're a small business because you're like, well, we can't bring a lot to the table, but like we're going to bring what we can, and that trying to remain thoughtful and intentional with any interaction you have, especially if you're asking a favor that you go, hey, you know, it'd be awesome if you could shadow Jeff. By the way, we're going to buy this coffee from you and this coffee from you and over we want to establish a long-term relationship versus just like hey i know you and we're friends right come help us because we don't know how to do this it goes back to that same thing of relationship and it's it's tough because of your background and almost like the you know the the coffee celebrity status that i it only hit me the first time we went to one of the coffee fests together and like during a five minute conversation, like three people walked up. They're like, Hey, I just want to let you know. I really like your videos. Thank you so much. And I was like, <laughs> Oh shit, this is real. Like this is very real. And with that in mind that it's tough. Cause I, I run into the same thing. Cause I'm obviously very closely tied to folly as is Jeff, because it's two of us. And so part of our product is us that there is a point where you have to say, don't work with listen and Beisler because you want to have that from me work with us because I'm working with a great company that does an amazing sort of job of transparency and we're sourcing great coffees. Yep. And you almost have to state it that you go, Hey, the expectation is not because you're working with me now that I'm now your independent consultant on everything you need. <laughs> right. And that's a tough thing because I'm sure there are a lot of roasters that you're probably bringing in because of the influence you have. And I mean, the second you started working with them, I go, if he's working with them, I know all these thoughts, all these steps have been intentionally thought through mm-hmm. versus I'm going to work with them because now he has to answer my questions. Yeah. And that's like, it's kind of an awkward thing to bring up early in a relationship to be like, we're stoked to have you as a customer. I've had to do it once or twice where a customer that is not a big, big customer and go, Hey, I really appreciate your business. I love being partners with you, but you know, we, we have a full workload and this can't be a weekly thing. Yeah. We can't fill you in. We can't have constant interaction every time there's an other, and especially now that our online business is growing. I mean, we've got a few customers where it's like, your tip is great. Here's a resource for it. Yep. Here's a third party resource. Here's where I would go to look this up. Yeah. Well, what do you do in the morning? This, like that, that's how the podcast started. Ironically is I was answering too many people. Yeah at length and then going, I just spent two hours. That's how the video started. <laughs> yeah. I just spent two hours interacting yeah. with a customer that bought a bag of coffee and hasn't since. And you're yeah. like, oh, okay. So this is just who I was when I first got into coffee that I was just so stoked to talk with any roaster, anybody that would respond. I'd keep interacting until they stopped responding. Yep. <laughs> Which, <laughs> Maybe you drove them away. Gained a little perspective being <laughs> on the other side now. Um, and that's an interesting thing to take, but the influence you've had within the twin cities and just on a, on a whole national scale is impressive. And, uh, it is something to be, and I'll never perceive it that way, but it is something that like, I need, I look at you and go, well, shit, he's draining himself so much. That's like, 
I, I need to be more cognizant of that in our interaction. I said, well, I appreciate you being here so much and that like, oh, I love it. I tried to bring back guests. Like if I'm asking someone back, it's because they hopefully have shown a sign of like, I actually enjoy this <laughs> versus yeah. I've had a couple of guests where I'm like, they were, they were checking the watch like 10 <laughs> minutes in. I'm like, okay, they're doing me a favor here and I should have maybe brought a better gift for them now that they're on the podcast. But wanted to thank you for everything you've done for yeah. us and excited to see where you're going uh, with List and Beisler and, uh, yeah, we're obviously going to continue to work with you, and the coffees have been amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, and whenever it's with within the parameters of genuine relationship and you're working together to build something bigger, that is in and of itself refreshing. And so it's not as draining as that like consumer relationship that somebody, they don't know you, they don't want to know you, they don't have any inkling to go further than just consuming the answer that they're going to apply to their business to grow it for as little as they possibly can. Yeah. Where it's, it's like a totally different thing. What can I get from you? What do you have that I don't have that I could benefit from? And that's why if I'm asking anything, I I try only to approach situations where you go, well, this is at least somewhat mutually beneficial because that's the kind of the tough thing in business is I think a lot of people have their defenses up at all times where if this person's approaching me, how are they trying to take advantage of me? How are they trying to get the best out of me with the most uh, benefit for them? And so trying to approach customers, importers, anybody and say, hey, our goal is to grow, Uh, but in a way that benefits us both and being able to communicate that openly. Um, Not to say that I'm very, I'm not great at it yet. I'm hopefully getting better, but hopefully the people that interact with me believe that what we're saying is true <laughs> that we're genuinely trying to grow that way you'll prove it out and yeah we're trying to and it, that i'll end on this note because we're running long here but uh that is kind of the, the the tough part about being on the small roaster side is approaching importers and just being like hey i know we're buying next to nothing but like i promise you this is where we're trying to go but realizing that that importer probably hears that from every coffee roaster they talk to that we're going to be the next this or that and you unfortunately can only prove that with time Yep. And so that's what I'm working at on my side. And that's what we're trying to do that. Like, hopefully as we grow, if you're going to make commitments, stick to those commitments, even if in the future as financial pressure grows to potentially not have the same operating standards, that that's just not how we're going to do it. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on today. I really Thanks appreciate for having your time. Me, yeah. Look forward to next time. Yeah. And don't let pe- don't let too many people drain you. Okay. I'm, you too. I, I kept you past five today. Don't let me do that. <laughs> Too late. Too late. <laughs> I'll end it like I do every other episode and say have a nice day.